1: Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by Professor Richard Leduc. Uh,
0: Thank you, Garrett. In this week's podcast, we want to start off with an email that kind of provides a jumping off point for kind of a larger discussion. So um, the email says, My question is, how do historians deal with oral history not authenticated by any written documentation?
1: So this is a, a great question, and it's a much more complex question. I mean, um, if anyone ever tries to give you a really simple answer to a question, you know, a they're obviously not a historian because we have to talk for about fifteen minutes and then say nothing, and then when you get to the end of it, you're like, "Did I learn anything?" And the answer is going to be no. <laughs> so gear up for that. But um, the, 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 that's some foreshadowing for the yeah next, 45 yeah minutes. Hate, yeah. Well, really for the entire podcast season. But um, so it, there's a couple aspects to this, and and we did we covered this a little bit in our very first episode where we talked about you know how can you know. Essentially, what happened in the past, and and one of the issues surrounding that is we are talking about religious events, and and that was in particular um, uh, this woman's question was was uh, in particular surrounding you know what about you know the oral history of a, of a miraculous event that happened in a family. Um, I can tell you right now that there are miraculous events that have happened in my family that are recorded nowhere because even though I read journals for a living, I don't keep them for a living. And I guess until someone pays me to keep one, I'm not gonna do it. Which you'd think it'd be the other way around. You'd think that, oh, you you know how important this is to your posterity. If only you didn't know how lazy I am when it comes to writing a journal. And I've tried several times and but part of the part of the there's two reasons why I don't keep a journal very well. One is it's it's just really hard for me to 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 be uh, it's hard for me to think that anything i write anyone's ever going to care about and i even mean academically i mean just anything at all like hey today i had in and out burger richard paid <laughs> finally you know i mean i don't know i don't know what 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 you would say but yeah i mean uh but then also being a historian you're also well aware that someone might read this someday and so you're like well, should I explain that I was really 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 angry at this guy for for saying this to me? No, nah, I better not. I don't want people to think I'm some kind of jerk and, you know, whatever. So, I don't know, so I end up not covering it. But the point being, in my personal, my own, you know, my own family, we've had miraculous experiences that are actually only recorded unless, you know, maybe my kids have written it down, maybe my wife wrote it down. I don't I don't I don't think so but they're only known orally to us which means if my grandkids know them they're only going to know them orally and maybe one of them will write them down at some point now the reality is this miracle that i am, am talking about it absolutely happened i uh, you know I, I was part of it i know that it happened but um if a historian 200 years from now is trying to verify whether or not that happened, they actually have a problem that's not related to the fact that I didn't write it down at the time. And that is, it's a miraculous event that we're talking about. So historians can only prove what most likely happened in the past. And by definition, miracles are never the most likely thing that happened in the past. And, and, and I know that that might you know, come across a little unsettling to people like, no, no, uh, miracles didn't. Please don't misunderstand me. I'm not saying that miracles didn't happen. What I'm saying is the reason why they're so powerful to us is they couldn't possibly have happened without the power of God. If miracles were things we could replicate, well, then we wouldn't really care about them very much. And in fact, you you know, you notice from the Book of Mormon, right? What happens after the, the greatest miracle I mean, as far as a collective, shared miracle, it's pretty hard to get past the day and the night and the day. The sun goes down, and it's still light outside. The whole face of the land sees it. and And the Book of Mormon says, everybody's converted by it. Everyone gets converted. They now remember where they were at? Where were they at? We've got some believers in in Jesus that we are going to kill tomorrow morning if Samuel's sign doesn't appear. The sign appears that night and they go from being ready to murder people for having a different religious belief to the entire face of the whole land being converted. And then what happened? Within three to six to nine years, hard to tell exactly, people started providing alternative explanations for the supposedly miraculous thing that they all saw. And and so what happens, even when people try to discount miracles, when when a non-believer discounts them, is how do they try to do it? They try to provide a somehow, seemingly, but not really very convincing, plausible explanation for the reason why what happened happened. And, And that way, because because they're trying to get to their end and their end is I don't want to have to believe that there's a Supreme being who's intervening in our lives because that mean I might have to change my life a little bit and I don't want to have to go there. So it's much easier to just say, yeah, I'm sure it was just, you know, luck of the draw that, that X happened instead of Y. Um, So, so fundamentally, again, I told you I was going to talk for 15 minutes before I even started to answer the question. Fundamentally, the problems actually with, with, mixing the two fields because our history happened in the past, because we're talking about our ancestors and the miracles that happened to them. Yes, that is approaching the field of history. But the moment I attempt through the field of history to prove or disprove whether or not great, great grandpa raised a child from the dead, I actually can't prove that because historians they, they can't, they, they aren't God, they, they, even though many of them think they are. Um, uh, historians can only do what sources allow them to do. So when it comes to family histories of, of powerful, miraculous experiences, what, what can historians do? Historians can try to get to the earliest source of when people started talking about it. But this isn't a slam dunk. Now, critics of the church think that this is. Right, So a critic will say something, and if you go back to our podcast on the first vision, a critic will say, well, because Joseph Smith didn't write about the first vision until 12 years after it happened, obviously he's lying about it. Well, a critic might say that, but historians don't. Uh, historians simply say, that they let you know when he first wrote it down, or they might say, you know, while, you know, while Lucy Max Smith in her later reminiscence said that Joseph told the family about the first vision, there are no uh, contemporary sources that record Joseph's first vision until 1832. Now, that's, you notice why people don't read history because that sounded very boring, but it was also very precise. Notice I didn't say, and so that proves that Joseph Smith didn't have an experience with the divine. The person who starts to say that because there isn't a source that the claimed uh, miraculous event was impossible is is already not doing history, because the whole point is it's a miraculous event. And so, um, and, and look, this is the case with other religious scholars. I mean, Martin Luther does not tell people about his conversion. Uh, you know, Martin Luther will later in life say that what caused him to become a monk was he was walking on the road. He gets caught in this horrific thunderstorm. He absolutely believes he's going to die in it. And and so in his fear and his angst, and it, he cries out to God, he bargains with God like we all do when things are terrible, like you're doing right now, listening to this podcast. Please, please make this better. I promise I'll I'll, I'll do ministering. Um, uh, He calls out to God and says, uh, he actually calls out to St. Anne, um, who... Uh, is the mother, or at least the traditional, the mother of Mary, who's, who's, who's a, a saint in the Catholic Church. Now, it's, it's kind of the greatest irony of all time that Martin Luther's going to do more to destroy the veneration of the saints than, than essentially anyone. You know, I mean, uh, 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 you know, no longer praying to saints and things like that. But anyway, um, he cries out to St. Anne and says, St. Anne, save me, and I'll become a monk. And he says that the, the the thunderstorm dissipates and he survives. Now he thought he was going to die to him as he recounts it, it. It is absolutely a miracle that he was saved and he then dedicated his life to God. You know, his parents were very upset because they wanted to be a lawyer because they wanted him to, have, you know, have prominence and make money and be important. Um, and, um, uh, uh, So you see that whole story of Martin Luther's conversion is not something he tells when it happens. So a historian doesn't attempt to say Martin Luther didn't actually have that spiritual experience. Another person, Ellen White. Ellen White is the founder of what would later become the Seventh-day Adventists. She claims to have received revelations. She doesn't, because she's afraid of how her parents will react, she doesn't tell her parents about the revelations she's received for years. But historians don't say, that proves Ellen White's a liar. If she didn't tell them right away, if God appeared to me, I would have told people right away. That kind of just truculent response, that you know exactly what you would do if God appeared to you, is frankly stunning to me, and it's a really really good reflection of how just important that person saying it thinks they are. That you know exactly what you would do if God appeared to you. Frankly, I don't think any of us know what we would do if God appeared to us. We can think all day long about what we'd write down and what we'd say and the questions we'd ask or whatever, but when god or that angel or that you know that ministering spirit is actually speaking to you i i think all of the of the what ifs kind of go out the window into to the reality of that situation my point being in the field of religious history historians do not attempt to discount events on the basis that they are are miraculous uh, they simply say this is what that person said. So I don't try to prove that there wasn't really a thunderstorm the day Martin Luther said there was one. I simply say many years later in his life, Martin Luther explained his conversion this way. And then Martin Luther's doing the talking. And so someone could say, well, yeah, well, maybe Martin Luther's making it up. Yeah, maybe he is. But as a historian, I can't make that judgment. Martin Luther certainly seems to feel pretty passionate about Lutheranism. Certainly is willing to here I stand I can do no other, right? And and he is saying that this was the start of his conversion. And someone might quibble with that and say, "Well, I think there were a lot of other factors." And you of course you can say that. But you can't definitively say it because the person who had the miraculous experience is saying this is what happened to me and one of the you know one of the great you know unfortunate things in life i guess is you won't ever actually know how any other person actually thinks you have an idea from what they say but you won't actually know what's going on inside their mind and historians you know unlike tarot card readers don't try to do that we don't try to say oh uh I know that because Martin Luther said this later, he must not have ever believed it. We let people know he didn't say this till later. But if you go the next step saying that proves he didn't really have an experience, well, then you're not doing history anymore. You're, you're doing theology. You're, you're doing atheism. You're doing whatever you want to do, but you're not doing history because history can only prove things that are provable. Miracles aren't one of them. So the only thing you can actually prove when it comes to a miracle is did people really believe that it happened now their belief that it happened is also not you know undisputed evidence that it happened i mean there are people all the time who think miraculous things have happened to them that have not i mean or maybe they had miraculous things happen from a wrong source i mean like our favorite our favorite stupid person from the book of mormon i mean corahor is like he's He's the best, right? I mean, his entire argument is there is no God. There is no being in the unseen world. That the unseen world doesn't exist. In fact, he says, you cannot know of things which you cannot see, right? Korohor's entire argument is there is no God. And when it comes right down to it, where did he get the information that there's no being in the unseen world?
0: An angel appeared to him to tell him.
1: An angel appeared to him to say, just so you know,
0: there aren't any angels. I think we have the, name, the title for this, this episode, Korahor is the Best. I thought you really nailed it.
1: I, I, yeah, I mean, but the point being that, that, that he's, he, his argument, instead of just saying, I don't really believe, his argument is, I had a miraculous experience that told me there aren't any miraculous experiences.
0: Yeah, he is it, the it, best. It, yeah, yeah, it's the
1: logical inconsistency <laughs> is incredible. So um, when it comes to things like family histories, right? So mm-hmm. these can sometimes um, cause problems, right? Because uh, some things that people claim in a family history can be verified, for instance, if someone says, my great-great-grandfather fought in the Battle of Nauvoo and their great-grandfather was born in 1849, well, he didn't, you know, you know right? So, so some things like that can be verified. And, and sometimes that does happen where things are built up in history and, and in family war. And they end up not being totally accurate. And they can be definitively understood as not totally accurate. Because you know, maybe there was another, you know, mob violence that this that the family was referring to. And they someone somewhere along the line, you know, connected it to the Battle of Nauvoo. But the reality is, you know, dad did wasn't alive at the time. So I guess he couldn't have been there. Um a great example of this. I I, I know at some point we'll cover uh plural marriage. Um I think we said it would be season seventeen. Um and after only Richard's running the podcast. That's our plan.
0: And it will be our final season. Our our
1: eventual our eventual uh goal is to have my mom and and Richard as the two hosts of the podcast. So that's that's what our eventual aim is. Um um maybe Rachel's mom.
0: Oh for sure. We'll bring
1: Rachel's mom mom in, my mom and then Richard, I just want you to fade into the background. (laughs) More than you do now.
0: <laughs> so, so, uh, uh,
1: a great example of this was work that was done, uh, by, uh, uh, Latter-day Saint, uh, geneticists when it came to claims, family oral history claims that people were descended from Joseph Smith's plural marriages. Now, by the late 19th century, early 20th century, our our church was actually very much um, trying to, you know, document Joseph Smith's plural marriages for the sole reason that the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ the Latter Day Saints was constantly attacking our church as being the false church by claiming that Joseph Smith never taught or practiced plural marriage. Well, uh, I even have I was reading an account just the other day of Alexander Smith. Uh so Joseph Smith's um uh, uh young, he would have been just a young, young boy when when Joseph was murdered, he becomes one of the leaders of the reorganized church and he comes out to Utah as on like a missionary mission, you know, saying, you know, trying to get, you know, as long as you can get anyone in Utah to believe that Brigham Young's not a true prophet, well, you can get him back over to follow Joseph Smith III, his his older brother. And Apparently there was a public discussion about this in which Alexander, at least according to the source, where Alexander Smith is saying, you know, Joseph Smith never taught polygamy. That's not true. And in the discussion, there are several of Joseph Smith's wives who were sealed to him and say, Well, I know he practiced it because I was married to him, right? Which becomes a pretty difficult thing for him to refute, right? I mean, um, uh, and again, according to the source, uh, I don't want to put too many words in Alexander Smith's mouth. Uh, according to the source, a- as the discussion progressed, Alexander Smith eventually said, "Look, if he did receive a revelation on polygamy, then that then then he became a fallen prophet because polygamy is wrong. That's how far he was willing to take it. Um, that they were so certain polygamy was wrong that that would have been would have caused Joseph to be a fallen his his father a fallen prophet. Again, I want to put all those words in Alexander Smith's mouth." The point is our church in the 1860s, 1870s, 1880s, 1890s, I mean, well into the 20th century has a vested interest in trying to demonstrate and document that Joseph Smith taught and practiced plural marriage because one of the main antagonists to our church was another church claiming that Brigham Young was a false prophet because he maintained the DNC 132 as a revelation that Joseph had received. And so in that world, I mean, it's, it, look, this is going to sound incredibly like anyone listening now is like, I don't understand it all. Yeah. Well, it's a different world. The past is different, but in that world, it was actually kind of seen as a badge of honor if people could say, oh yeah, my family was actually descended from one of Joseph Smith's marriages. And, and and so there were multiple families in Utah that really believed that they were, and and look, they had a good claim. It was the fact that their great, great grandmother, however far back you go, their grandmother, great grandmother was, was married to Joseph Smith is one of the records that we have. Oh, she is one of the people that sealed to Joseph Smith, right? And so the argument that well we're actually descended from him that 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 you know this person's actually you know in our lineage is actually a child of that plural marriage became a part of family tradition and history and lore, and it became a certain part of it. Well, I I, I don't know what he expected to find. We could probably interview him someday. He's a good friend of mine, um, but he uh, he he did genetic testing on several of these families, different families from different plural marriages in which they were claiming that they were descended from, jo- we are children from Joseph Smith's plural marriages. And what he found was that none of them were actually descended from Joseph Smith's plural marriages. All of these families, independent families, several families, all had independent oral history of the fact that was certain we are descended from Joseph Smith's plural marriages. And they weren't. Now, now that's going to cause all kinds of consternation, certainly inside those families. Well, wait a minute, but great-grandma said this. And, and, and as a historian, you don't know where that misunderstanding leaked its way into the oral history or tradition. Um, anyone who's played the game of telephone knows that you're going to start with something And you're going to end up with something else that might be related, but actually, if it was exactly the same, when you got 17 people, you know, in in a circle and you all whisper something, you know, I believe Louisiana is the Pelican State, and you whisper that to someone, and by the time it gets all the way around to the last person, they're like, the Pelicans should never have drafted Zion Williams. Like, the word Pelican's still in there. Like, there are some things that are still in there, but it wouldn't actually be a very fun party game if when you did it. It always ended up the same, right? The, the, so when you're talking about historical verifiable events, historians are more cautious. Um, and there's there's a lot of levels of that of that separation. And now this is not, again, I have, in my own family history, miraculous experiences that are later recorded by, you know, children of the, 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 the people who had it happen to them. And I, I want to believe that those events happen because they're miraculous and they're great. And, and and I feel like they did. I also know as a historian, I can't disprove that they happened. And it would be weird for me to try to disprove that they happened. Oh, no, there's no possible way that that happened because I don't have a source. No historian is saying that. No historian is saying that. Um, so anyway, um, I, I think you have to take whatever the situation is on a case by case basis, if someone says I was with Joseph Smith in Lima, Illinois on June 28th, 1844, well, they probably weren't because Joseph Smith was killed on June 27th, 1844. And so maybe they're just misremembering the date. Maybe uh, they're thinking of something that happened at a different time. You wouldn't completely discount the, the fact the person claimed they had the conversation but you would at least say you know at the very least we know that they didn't have a conversation with Joseph at least not in the flesh after Joseph had already been murdered.
0: So one example from my family history uh, my grandmother uh, tells a story of the way that my great grandmother came to America so she grew up in what's now Belarus. And there was quite the, the to-do about her being able to flee and come over to America. And the way that my grandmother would tell the story is that, um, that, that her, her parents had been killed and uh, so that her grandfather had her papers and that the Nazis had come and had kind of taken a hold of, of her grandfather and he had – her papers for her to be able to come to America and her coat in his coat, and he threw the coat to her and told her to to run and she she took them and she she got away and she hid. She was able to come over to America. I got probably about thirty seven percent of that correct. Um, the problem with this particular telling of the story is, and it's it's a it's a thrilling story. It sounds like something that I need to contact Steven Spielberg about, right? It sounds like a like a really dramatic and exciting. Um, event that happened. Very traumatic. Um, The problem is is that the Nazis weren't doing anything in today's Belarus in 1920. Um, That didn't exist. And we've later found written records of aspects of this that have taken place. But over time in the family, it just became that this was kind of the telling. And there wasn't really a, a deep examination that they were off by about you know, well, I mean, look that there were so
1: pogroms against uh, Jews in in in, sure. in Russia, and 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 uh, certainly in the fight of the you know if it's nineteen nineteen and nineteen twenty, it's the middle of the Russian Revolution and the Reds, and 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 uh, there's there's all kinds of violence. Well, I mean, this yeah. is the
0: thing: the, the the fact that there was that there could have been this major event that was very traumatic and 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 insane. Absolutely is is a possible thing, but the fact that it was
1: that it wasn't it wasn't Nazis in in 1990. That's right. right, and 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 that I think really kind of sums up a lot of things when it comes to oral history tradition. That that historians have to be careful when it comes to certain facts. That Richard's grandmother experienced this trauma, I, I think, is beyond dispute right that this is something she personally felt and 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 obviously was a part of her life the the details about when and how and and where those might be a little off as people retell them over the course of years and of course age sets in and 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 there's other factors and 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 so that that's the reason why we have to we have to be careful.
0: So there was an interesting thing as is, is you're is you're saying so this was my great grandmother and my grandmother is telling me this this story. This was just this last year she was telling me the story again, and um, I, I told her I said Grandma, but the Nazis they they weren't. I mean this this was far before the Nazis, mm-hmm. and her point was interesting to me because she said. Nazis, Russians—it it, it, doesn't—they're <laughs> all, all the same.
1: Now, in fairness to the Jewish people of Europe, probably
0: <laughs> yeah, actually. Russians. Yeah, th- Russians there was Nazis a lot also.
1: of. I mean, obviously, there was anti-Semitic violence against
0: Jews uh, in Eastern Europe, but so. But that was her. Her point wasn't necessarily the group of people that was doing the thing; it was the the dramatic events and story, and that the details that I shouldn't be so hung up in the particular yeah, thing.
1: And and I think that's how it is with a lot of oral history tra- traditions. Um, The, uh, and so I I think I'm not trying to say, like I said, I have my own family history things that I love and I cherish that I want to believe in. And I feel like there's obviously big aspects of truth surrounding them, but uh, so I, so I don't, I don't want anyone to come away saying like, oh, well then I can't believe great, great grandfather's story that an angel appeared to him. No, of course you can. Uh, it, it, the reality of miraculous events, I mean, the fact that they were felt enough, that they were passed down, of course you can believe that. But there is always a difference between doing religion and doing history. As I said before, you can't historically, as a historian, prove that Jesus was resurrected and that that's the reason why the tomb was empty. I mean, the writers of the gospel are already telling you how people are getting around that empty tomb, right? Oh, just say that his followers came and stole his body and took it away, right? So the, the reality is, what's more likely that for the first time and the only time in all of recorded history of this world, someone who was dead for three days came back to life? And that because he came back to life, we will all live again. Is that more likely or is it more likely that his followers just took his body and hit it? Well, it's easy for some uh, someone who's certainly a cynic to say, what's well, much more likely that his followers took in his body. We don't believe that Jesus was resurrected because it's the most likely scenario. We believe it because it's true. Now, we have other witnesses to that. We have all of the apostles in the New Testament as witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. And then we have the witnesses of the people who saw and heard Jesus in this dispensation. Part of the reason why I've said it before, part of the reason why it matters so much that Joseph Smith is a prophet, is that Joseph Smith saw and talked with Jesus. And not just once, not just twice, not just, didn't just hear his voice. He saw and talked to the Savior multiple times. The Book of Mormon is another witness that Jesus really was resurrected, that he came and visited all those thousands of people in the new world. The, the, The reality is we don't believe that Jesus is our resurrected Savior because you can prove it by stacking documents on top of each other. There's no way to prove it. There's no way to scientifically demonstrate resurrection. But you believe it because the Holy Spirit of God speaks to your soul and tells you that that's the case so please don't misunderstand me I'm, I'm not trying to say that if all we have of an event from the past is an oral tradition that that means it must not ever have happened no for for our religious purposes that that actually is how most of christian history was the early christian history was recorded the stories about Jesus were told to others and told to others and told to others, and that's how converts were 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 made. Long before there was a written Bible, right? Hundreds of years before there was a written Bible, it was oral history that converted people to the gospel. Now, I want to give a, a, a kind of a related example of this, uh, in part because we got another question. Um, uh, we've started checking our email occasionally. And so we have some questions in there. And um I actually still don't know how to log into the email. I have to have other people do it for me. That sounds worse than it is. I just I,
0: Richard's the only one
1: who can log into the email. He's probably the only one doing it. He's like,
0: um it's job security. Yeah,
1: job security. Richard won't give me the login, and also he's the one writing all of the emails. Um <laughs> maybe you should give a little bit more FaceTime to that Richard guy on your podcast. Have you thought about talking about business metrics? Um, anyway, um, a, a good example. I got a question uh, the other day emailed to me about uh, the, the the person was wanting to try to prove that it was a mistake to remove the attribution of Doctrine and Covenants section one thirty five to john taylor so you might have uh we we referenced this back when we did the martyrdom episode but i'm assuming that none of the listeners we had then are listeners now and that in fact this will be the last time you listen um that uh the the tribute to joseph and hyrum smith uh was attributed to john taylor and, and in your 1981 edition of the scriptures which is what many people listening grew up with um i don't know how many listeners we have in the in the 9 year old demographic but if we have any 8 or 9 year olds listening you know first of all you've got amazing parents second of all um you know they might have only used the 2013 edition of the scriptures but most of the people listening would have spent much of their adult life anyway using the 1981 edition of the scriptures which which you know that's the one that added dnc 137 it added dnc 138 and uh, official declaration too. So those were all added to the Doctrine and Covenants in 1981. And and that section heading for uh, Doctrine and Covenants section 135, the tribute to Joseph. You know, you all know it, right? You know Joseph Smith has done more for the salvation men in this world. That that tribute. The section heading said that it was written by John Taylor. Well, one of the the changes that happened in the 2013 edition of the doctrine and covenants, um, that people noticed, and this was what this question I received was, um, why did they change it? You know? And in fact, there are people who are attempting to provide their own explanations online for why they think it was, I mean, this is going to come as quite a shock, but there are people online who claim to have information about things that they might not have, but but are still willing to share it. It's very I don't believe it. This, okay, this maybe it's only me, but there's a possibility that if you Google something, the person giving their opinion about whatever that thing is may or may not be an expert. And um, and, and the reason why is because people had come to really, you know, oh, John Taylor, he was there with Joseph when he was shot, and then he penned this beautiful look, doctrine of section 135 is beautiful. It is one of the one of the 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 jewels of, of early Latter-day Saint literature. But they want to believe that John Taylor was, was the sole author of it in part, because that's what they've always believed. And it sounds really good because John Taylor, who had just been shot, you know, uh, he, he penned this in the, in the moments of his, of his agony and so I kind of wanted to to spend a little bit of time answering that question because it's related to this first question. Why do we think, or why did we think, that John Taylor was the author of Doctrine and Covenants section 135? Uh, if you've listened to any of this podcast at any point, you know that I am a big fan of John Taylor that I, I I love John Taylor. And what I love most about John Taylor is how much John Taylor loved Joseph Smith and especially how much he loved Hiram Smith. It is clear. It is obvious. Um, that the reason why I was so offended by that that so-called documentary that didn't use any actual documents um, uh, that claimed John Taylor was behind Joseph Smith's assassination and Hiram The reason why that's so offensive is because I have read the dozens and dozens and dozens of documents in which John Taylor just is so grateful for the light of the gospel that he has because of Joseph Smith. So I would love for Doctrine and Covenants section 135 to be written by John Taylor because I love John Taylor. So I'm I'm in the same camp. I grew up believing that John Taylor always wrote it. it. Made sense to me. It's what the scripture section heading said. And in 2013, that was changed. And so the question, the the query was, well, why was it changed? Or do you think they just need to find more evidence to put it back? Or or maybe the reason why they changed it was, you know, they were just getting pressure from people. because so, So it's good to go back and examine it. This document, the tribute to Joseph and Hiram Smith, was written very shortly after Joseph Smith was murdered and published. When it was published in 1844, there was no attribution to it. It was added to the back, the Doctrine and Covenants. The 1844 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants was already completed when, um, uh, when when Joseph went to Carthage. I mean, they they were proofing it; they were getting it ready for publication. They were they were already well on their way to publishing the 1844 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants. And so they they added to it this uh, this tribute to Joseph and Hiram, and unlike many of the places in the Doctrine and Covenants, it didn't have any reference section heading date or, or or anything. It just simply said, "Martyrdom of Joseph Smith and his brother Hiram." To seal the testimony of this book and the Book of Mormon, we close. You'll notice it's it's a plural there, right? We close with the martyrdom of Joseph Smith, the prophet, and Hiram Smith, the patriarch. They were shot in Carthage jail, and and you all know this, and you go on. So in the 1844 edition, there's no attribution made to John Taylor. In uh, 1876, there is a massive reorganization of the Doctrine and Covenants under Brigham Young's uh, direction. Now, we have another podcast on that. I can't remember what number that is. You, you, the History of the Doctrine and Covenants. I think we did something like that. I think like so, that. yeah. Yeah. We probably didn't. At this point, we're just going to claim we've had podcasts on larger issues and then have you go search and find them, downloading all of the episodes, driving our numbers up, helping out my mom, Rachel's mom, and everyone else's mom who who's willing to to download. So, But we do have an earlier one on the History of the Doctrine and Covenants, which Discusses that more in detail.
0: I think it was. I think it was November of 2021. I think that's about the time frame Is this an assume. oral history you're giving me now? It that, is. It was the yes. That's, so, that's correct. So in the Russians, years, the Russians, Russians, posted, Russians it. Will have posted. That's correct. Yeah, which maybe I mean. The, the, well, we know. could say. Well, we get a lot of emails about polygamy as an example. Now yes. we could just say. Well, we did that in a previous podcast. That's what my
1: plan is eventually. If we that's have sure. enough, and then we do a poor job of archiving them. It was no no it's it's on the site what well, side we' we're, no, no, we're already it's, way ahead on that
0: yeah yeah we're doing <laughs>
1: um perhaps our operating budget of zero <laughs> is at some point going to become prohibitive <laughs> for what we can deliver to you as content but uh so in 1876 the doctrine events is massively reorganized under the direction of Brigham Young and really Orson Pratt is the one tasked with doing it and and what I mean by reorganize is, is the doctrine and covenants is then put into chronological order and there are much more established section headings that are created um, for uh, these different sections. John Taylor of course is still alive at the time. John Taylor is the president of the quorum of the 12 apostles actually when the 1876 uh, doctrine and covenants um, comes out and he doesn't, you know, there, there is no reference to John Taylor being the author of that, of that. Now it's quoted multiple times in general conferences. John Taylor talks about the martyrdom of Joseph Smith a lot. Um, and as I said in a previous podcast, there's actually one time where, uh, Brigham, you know, it's, it's the anniversary of the murder of Joseph and Hiram and, and Brigham essentially says, I, I don't know that I want to hear from John Taylor on it because it just it's too emotional to hear from him. He doesn't use the word emotional, but too fired up or something like that. At any rate, um in the 1876 edition, it is also not attributed to anyone. In uh there's another major reorganization of the Doctrine and Covenants in 1921. In 1921, yet again, there is a no attribution um in fact if you uh go to the 1921 edition this is what you find so this is the section heading from the 1921 edition of the doctrine and covenants martyrdom of joseph smith the prophet and his brother Hiram smith the patriarch at carthage illinois june 27 1844 see history of the church volume six page 612 so The nice thing about the 1921 edition is that by this time, the history of the church has actually been published in that, that six volume set. And so to give historical background, it, uh, there there are a lot of references to the history of the church in the section heading. So if I want to learn more about it I can go read it now, of course, the history of the church isn't going to say, and by the way, John Taylor is the one who wrote this section. So that's not, that's not what's there. But you can see that, so in, as late as 1921, and we're now through the 1844, the 1876, the 1879, and the 1921 editions of the Doctrine and Covenants, there is no attribution to, to John Taylor as, as the, the, the writer of this. Um, also important that we don't have any known documents that John Taylor says Hey, by the way, I'm the one who wrote this. Um, you you don't have that at least anywhere that we know. Now, maybe there will be a document found again, you notice as a historian, I don't like to slam the door on anything. Is it possible that we find a John Taylor letter where he says, I remember when I wrote the tribute to john to, to joseph Smith and and Hiram Smith and that became part of the Doctrine and Covenants, I felt like maybe we'll find that someday. And if we do, well then, That will be really good evidence that he's the one who wrote it. Now, there are some things going against him having written it, right? Um, Though Willard Richards, in his initial, you know, after battle report, essentially, when he responds and tells the the saints in Nauvoo how, how terrible it is, he says, you know, John Taylor is wounded, not very badly. Now, I can only assume that that's what someone writes who doesn't have four bullet holes in them. You know, Willard Richard's like, well, one did graze the top of my ear. So, you know, we're all suffering here. But I mean, John Taylor's in, he's in agony. He's in a bad way. He's lost a ton of blood. If if you know anything about 19th century medicine, you should know that the real miracle is that John Taylor is alive at all, right? That he doesn't have a... gangrenous and infections that he, that, that that they don't try to treat him by bleeding him more because that's would have been something they might've tried to do. Uh, he talks about as they're trying to dig the bullets out of him, they're trying to do it with a dull pen knife and that it's just absolute agony. So John Taylor is, he's in a bad way. He, he doesn't walk home to Nauvoo from Carthage. He he is essentially unable to to move. I mean, he's brought home in a wagon. Is it possible that he then immediately dictated the the text of this? Of course, it's possible. It, it's entirely po- it's always possible. But there are some mitigating factors that would make that more difficult, right? That he he doesn't come immediately home from Carthage. The, the he. He, uh, it, when he does, he's in a really bad shape. He's not the next day in the Nauvoo neighbor printing office saying, all right, let's get this out. Oh no. I think that you've turned the M upside down. Mind your T's and your, your P's and Q's. That's where that comes from, by the way, the P's and Q's. Not, yeah. Cause they look the same upside down. But anyway, um, it, it, is it possible that someone came to his house and he dictated it to them? All of those things are possible. But we don't have an early manuscript of this. We don't have this handwritten out from the time before it was published. Willard Richards, of course, is certainly also one of the people who works uh, with the printing office. Maybe he had something, and, and he was certainly there. Clearly, Doctrine and section 135 takes information from what John Taylor has to say. But a lot of the information is also what is said by by Willard Richards himself in the newspaper when he explains it to people, and then explains it in a larger account as well. Um, there are other people who could have. William Clayton, we know, m- writes an account of the martyrdom. After having heard three people describe the martyrdom, he writes out what his understanding is. And William Clayton also loved Joseph Smith and had a beautiful pen and could could make things sound beautiful. So there are actually a lot of ways that this could have gone. The fact that it was written with this we announced the martyrdom of Joseph Smith the prophet and Hiram Smith um, really shows that whoever the authors are, there, there appear to be more than one, or whoever it is, is wanting to speak collectively for the church. This is the book of Revelations that's going to be sent out to members of the church all over the world. And they want to bookend it with we need to let you know that those murderers killed Joseph and Hiram. To seal the testimony of this book. But they don't ever say, and by the way, I'm I'm Willard Richards writing this. So now the question becomes well then then why is it in my 1981 scriptures saying that he, he wrote it? Well, um, and, and you know, maybe let's let's read that from the 1981 real quick, just so um we, we can be consistent with what we did with 1921. In the 1981 edition, it reads martyrdom of joseph smith the prophet and his brother Hiram smith the patriarch at carthage illinois june 27th 1844 and then it gives the same history of the church reference so it's exactly the same as the 1921 up to that point and then it says this document was written by elder john taylor of the council of the 12 who was a witness to the events so you notice that's new information that wasn't there before well um i i can't go into all the ins and outs of why that was in the 1981 edition and that it, it's not in the, the 2013 edition. The 2013 edition instead reads this way. Announcement of the martyrdom of Joseph Smith, the prophet, and his brother, Hiram Smith, the patriarch, at Carthage, Illinois, June 27, 1844. This document was included at the end of the 1844 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants, which was nearly ready for publication when Joseph and Hiram Smith were murdered. So it gives you a little bit different historical background, but doesn't make that attribution. The first place that we can find attribution being made actually comes shortly after so, Because the real question is, well, why is it in the 1981 edition? then? If it if, if wasn't in any of the ones before and it's not in the one after, how did it get into that one? Well, shortly after the 1921 edition is printed, there is a reference that is made to the authorship of this document in General Conference. So let's read that. It is from 1922. So just a year after the 1921 edition, again, doesn't give any authorship attribution. Um, you have uh, Heber J. Grant uh, speaking in General Conference. Heber J. Grant loved Section 135. Uh, as you go through, you can go through uh, the conference uh, corpus of all the all the uh, conference talks, and he is going to reference Doctrine and Covenants Section 135 over and over again. Um, you can feel how much Heber J. Grant is is touched by this by this tribute to Joseph and Hiram Smith. And in 1922, when he uh, gives this tribute, he says, I have understood that this splendid account of the martyrdom of Joseph and Hiram Smith was written by President John Taylor, known as the champion of liberty, who received four shots in his body and who lived carrying some of those bullets to his grave and who, years after the martyrdom, stood before the people in this stand as president, prophet, seer, and revelator of the Church of Jesus Christ. Uh, Heber J. Grant clearly uh, has great devotion towards John Taylor as well, having known him so well. And so this is where that that first reference. You'll notice it's not a definitive statement even there, though, right? It's it's uh, President Grant saying this is what I what I what someone's told me. Essentially, there's some oral history there. Notice he didn't say John Taylor told me that he wrote this. Even as close as he was with John Taylor, nope. You don't have that. What do you have? You have. I have understood that this was written by John Taylor. Well, of course, after that, doctrine and covenants commentaries, manuals, things, all I mean, part of the reason why is Doctrine and Covenants section 135 is so powerful. We want there to be an author. We want to be able to say, look at this person wrote this. It's really the only section in the Doctrine and Covenants where we just don't have an author. They're either revelations that Joseph Smith received or revelation that, that Joseph F. Smith received or Brigham Young received, and it's only DNC 135 that just is there, right? It's just words on the page. It's, a, it's the tribute, but it doesn't say who gave it. Um, and so um, over the course of the 20th century, whenever, not whenever, but it, increasingly, as people reference this great tribute to Joseph and Hiram Smith, they began saying that John Taylor wrote it that i'm guessing i I don't know it all i i trust me i'm 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 not uh in the circle to where i have any idea to know what uh led to the decisions for the section heading of the 1981 edition of the doctrine and covenants but i'm my uh, my guess is that because it had become more accepted belief since 1922 that john taylor had written it that that's the reason why that was added and of course, people love that. I mean, the, the part of what Heber J. Grant says here that is indisputable is that John Taylor is a champion of liberty. John Taylor suffered for Joseph. He received four shots in his body. Boris test I mean, all of those things are indisputable. That John Taylor wrote this, even President Grant isn't saying is indisputable. He's saying that he had understood that that has, is what happened. So someone somewhere must have said, now this is the earliest I can find, but if we had all the documents from the past, maybe we would know more about what happened. So then in the 2013 edition of the scriptures, utilizing the research from the Joseph Smith papers and from um, the the new understandings, the, er, there were many changes made to the section headings of uh, the Doctrine and Covenants. Now, most of them were very minor. Most of them were, oh, we thought it was this day and it was actually this day because we got the earliest manuscript version. Um, what seems to be apparent is that when there was greater investigation of this attribution of authorship, that the, the realization was, was that, well, John Taylor doesn't ever say that he wrote it, and he quotes from it. I, I mean, he, he, this is a big deal to him. Joseph's martyrdom is clearly a main theme for John Taylor. None of the previous sections, uh, uh, editions of the Doctrine and Covenants ever say that John Taylor wrote it. No contemporaries of John Taylor ever say that John Taylor wrote it. The original authors of the statement didn't think that they needed to put an attribution to it. My guess is that the conclusion was made, well, if we don't know for sure, we shouldn't say, we we shouldn't say something that we don't know. We should just let it stand the same way it's always stood. It's only the 1981 edition of the Doctrine and Covenants that even attempted attribution. Now, there are other places where there were changes that were made. And in fact, uh, what we're going to talk about next week is some understandings that we have about baptism that uh, that are also affected by kind of the messiness of history and how history is recorded and what documents exist. So, hopefully, this was an entertaining exploration of you know uh, oral histories and and the origin of doctrine. Coming to Section One Thirty Five, I hope that no one gets too hung up on any of these things because whether John Taylor wrote DNC 135 or whether someone else wrote it or whether he collaborated with other people to write it or, or it, it doesn't actually matter it's scripture to us it's canonized the section heading wasn't wasn't the scripture the words themselves are the scripture and they've been in that book of scripture bookending, you know the final statement essentially of of of, of those revelations since 1844, since the aftermath of the murder of Joseph and Hiram Smith. So even if we don't know exactly who wrote it, God is letting us know that it's Scripture. Um, and that, that, I think, is what we really need to focus on. Maybe I can't prove every miraculous event from the past, but whether an individual miraculous event happened or not is actually not the deciding factor in whether or not this is God's true church. This is God's true church, even though there are some messy aspects of history, even though we don't have all the answers, even though there are things that I can't give you any answers for because I don't know. It's still God's true church. It is still the restoration that God envisioned to to bring greater light and, and knowledge to the world. Messy, right? As, you know, using imperfect humans, uh, to, 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 to roll his purposes forward as God has always done. Anyone who thinks that God has used perfect people to work in the past hasn't read any part of the Bible. Um, the, the reality is God only has imperfect people to work with as, as the apostle says. And and so that's, that's what, what we have from the past. Hopefully, this kind of gives us a better understanding. I, I don't want anyone to be too quick to jump to say, oh, well, that must not be true at all from the past because we only have one source. And I also don't want people to be so tied to the specific events of a single oral history that it hurts their testimony if another source comes out. Because what matters is that Jesus is the Christ and that Joseph Smith was his prophet. It doesn't actually matter who wrote Doctrine and Covenants section 135. What matters is the truth of the resurrection of the Savior and that God has prophets on the earth today. So hopefully you'll enjoy the continuation of that discussion next week.
0: Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from
1: the material in this episode, Please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.